As we wrap up this series on the Bible in Arabic, I want to delve a little deeper into the issue of how Bible translation organizations are handling the issue of Muslim idiom translations today. That way, hopefully, we can have more informed conversations about a healthy way forward and know how to pray for Bible translation in Arabic and other Muslim-dominant languages. We also want to look at how these organizations are communicating or not communicating openly about these things with financial partners and see what we can learn. I'm Andrew Case, and you're listening to Working for the Word. For this episode, I'm going to be drawing at length from a forthcoming publication by Seth Vitrano Wilson, who has been a guest on this podcast in the past, so a huge thanks to him for being willing to share his expertise, research, and insights into this issue that can sometimes be a bit thorny. With his help, we'll try to get a better understanding of the competing pressures facing organizations from translators, donors, staff members, scholars, denominations, and other translation organizations, as well as how controversies related to Muslim idiom translations have been presented to the Christian public. We'll look at some other things as well. So before we tackle some of these things, I want to go back and remind ourselves of the historical context in which we find ourselves regarding translation standards. Throughout history, there have been various translation standards developed that are relevant to our discussion of translation into Arabic and other Muslim-dominant languages. For example, let's take a look at the American Bible Society's Guide from 1961. You may not have heard of it, but the influence of Eugene Nida and his theories of functional equivalence beginning in the mid-20th century led many organizations to move toward greater flexibility in Bible translation, as can be seen in these rules. Now, unlike earlier historical rules, the 1961 guide makes no attempt to go into detailed problems, but instead is limited to a broad definition of principles. So, the guide emphasizes the need for flexibility in dealing, for example, with the lack of correspondence in cultural details, the need to adjust metaphors, and the importance of ensuring comprehension. Now, when the guide gets to a section that deals with terms of special theological significance, it says one should endeavor, one, to reproduce adequately the distinctive import which such words have in the scriptures, and two, to avoid interpretations which will produce controversy. Such terms should be indigenous whenever possible, that is, not borrowed or transliterated, but they must be general terms, not terms that can only refer to indigenous religious practices. Furthermore, they should provide the basis for meaningful distinctions between the message of the scriptures and the beliefs of other religions, end quote. Now, we also have looked at Phobi's standards in a past episode, but let's review some of the relevant sections of that document. For example, it states that translators should make every effort to ensure that no political, ideological, social, cultural, or theological agenda is allowed to distort the translation, end quote. Now, obviously, that is very relevant to our current discussion, but 
in the document, it doesn't give any specific examples of when this has happened or how to determine if any such agenda is present in a translation. So there's no criteria by which to evaluate and make that judgment. So in spite of that document being adopted as a standard for so many organizations back in 1999, we still had the advent of the divine familial terms controversy, which might cause someone to question, what's the point of having these kinds of standards if everybody is supposed to interpret them however they feel like it, or within their own closed organization, according to their own biases? And add to this the problem that, as Vetrano Wilson observes, quote, SIL doesn't publicize its translation choices relating to father-son terms, and because much of their work involves lesser-known languages, it is difficult to know how often or in what ways SIL translators might push the boundaries of what could be considered familial but not son-by-nature or father-by-nature words for scripture products, or what renderings continue to be used in scripture-based products. In fact, one main result of the public criticism on father-son terms may have been to drive discussion of religious idiom translation issues underground for SIL translators, as we shall see, end quote. Now, all of this issue is aggravated by interorganizational tensions, because all of these organizations obviously want to work together in harmony. They're all on the same team, right? They're all working for Bible translation, and so they want to support each other, they want to work together, they want to share resources, but this whole issue of the divine familial terms created more and more tension, as we saw in past episodes. We saw people like Wycliffe Associates distance themselves from Wycliffe USA over this issue and other organizations. We had Frontiers, for example, who produced the controversial Turkish translation as well as other Muslim idiom translations, and they voted against accepting the WEA panel recommendations for their translation projects. And later, which is even more shocking to me, is that Frontiers rejected the proposal to merely require translators to at least read the WEA guidelines. Not necessarily have to abide by them, but at least read them and consider them. And that was rejected. In contrast, Vitrano Wilson writes, organizations like Pioneer Bible Translators, Ethnos 360, The Seed Company, The Lutheran Bible Translators had strong incentives to stay out of the public light and to avoid making public statements. Many of these organizations had a strong relationship with Wycliffe and SIL and didn't want to jeopardize that relationship. But organizations also didn't want to antagonize donors, staff, and partners who felt strongly that terms meaning father and son should be maintained in all translations. Given the significant financial loss that Wycliffe and SIL were facing as a result of the controversy, as well as the departure of many members over the issue, the leadership of most other Bible translation organizations chose to avoid the controversy by remaining silent. End quote. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place, basically. And I would add that having no policy is having a policy. And silence can be deafening and very confusing. Vitrano Wilson goes on to write, Though public controversy in the West related to Muslim idiom translations simmered down after the WEA panel report, 
Arab Christians have continued to vocally oppose MIT work in their midst. For example, over two dozen Arab pastors signed an open letter rejecting three Muslim idiom translations, particularly in their modification of father-son terms. The pastors asked the global church to please stop supporting and producing such translations and destroy any known copies in public circulation. In the summer of 2020, intense controversy erupted in Egypt over two translations and two commentaries produced by MIT publisher Al-Kalima. And the controversy spilled into mainstream Egyptian newspapers and TV and even reached the Arabic versions of international news sites such as the BBC, The Independent, and Russia Today. The more than a dozen statements made against the four works of Al-Kalima generally fall into two camps. Coptic statements denouncing the translations and Protestant and Catholic statements likewise denouncing the translations and denying any involvement. For example, in their official statement, the Coptic Church called the translations fabricated and false versions that disturb societal peace by tampering with texts of the holy books. The Church affirmed its total rejection of these books, the content of which is completely incompatible with the basics of the Christian faith, they wrote. Similarly, the Coptic Orthodox Cultural Center said that this translation spreads apostasy and heresy to destroy sound Christian faith. The Bible Society of Egypt denied any involvement in the true meaning translation, rejected its distribution, and formed a special committee to review the translation. The committee said that the true meaning translation does not adhere to the standards and regulations of translations that are approved by the United Bible Societies and which translation scholars and specialists have agreed upon and expressed its extreme displeasure with some of the vocabulary and terms used in this translation. End quote. Now, obviously, these are kinds of things that most Westerners are never going to hear about. Betty and John over in North Carolina will never be the wiser, even though they've been generously supporting the organizations behind this for years out of their retirement savings. Vitrano Wilson also goes on to point out that Andrea Zaki, the president of the Protestant churches of Egypt, said that the translations contain, quote, many clear theological errors, end quote, and noted that he had already publicly rejected them in a televised interview the previous February. The Coptic Orthodox Church, the Coptic Catholic Church, and most evangelical denominations in Egypt issued statements rejecting this type of translation of the Bible, and this constitutes a final judgment that these translations are rejected and are not valid, he said. He noted that in light of these theological challenges facing the church, the time has come to call a council of evangelical theologians from all evangelical denominations to discuss Bible translation issues. For Bible translations produced with the help of major evangelical organizations such as Wycliffe, SIL, and Frontiers, and which use a translation philosophy they have promoted to be denounced and disavowed, in newspapers and TV channels across the Arab world is clearly not the ideal any Christian would hope for. This demonstrates all too clearly the danger of ignoring the numerous voices of local Christians who oppose renderings found in Muslim idiom translations. End quote. 
Now, remember, this is happening in 2020. This is not something that was happening before the resolution of the WEA and their decisions. So, it's understandable that things like the Arlington Statement on Bible translation have arisen out of these issues. You can go read it for yourself at arlingtonstatement.org. And we introduced it in an episode quite a while back, but I hope all of this is helping to put it in a stronger context and help us all understand how these sorts of things arose. The initial signers of this statement included Bibles International, Tyndale Bible Translators, and All Nations Bible Translation, as well as local church networks in predominantly Muslim areas, a number of missions organizations, various scholars and translators associated with biblical missiology, and several theologians and translators involved in translations for majority languages such as Arabic, Turkish, English, Bengali, and Albanian. Discussion and drafting involved translators from these organizations as well as Wycliffe and SIL, the United Bible Societies, and other smaller organizations, though pressure from organizational leadership led some of these involved in discussions not to sign the statement. So, what was it for? Well, it was to formulate standards on religious idiom translations that could serve as a policy for those organizations who chose to adopt them, as well as for any individual translators, churches, denominations, or other groups or individuals who desired to commit to a conservative and linguistically informed set of principles on religious idiom translations. So, the statement included specific examples of translation practices it considered to be beyond faithful boundaries, such as the inclusion of the first half of the Shahada, there is no God but Allah, in Bible translations, and the translation of Kurios, Lord, in a way that differentiates between God the Father and Jesus, which obscures the equality of Jesus with the Father and the removal of reference to the fattened calf from the parable of the prodigal son in Hindu contexts in response to Hindu sensibilities. Now, you would think that we as Bible translators who claim to be scholars and who publish scholarly articles, in fact, that's one of the requirements to become a consultant, is you have to have published in a scholarly journal, peer-reviewed, Well, you would think that some of these translation ideas, such as including the first half of the Shahada in a translation, would be amply defended in the scholarly journals. Remember that part of being a scholar is that you're not afraid to have your ideas critiqued, but you're also not afraid to present them well and defend them. But that is just simply not the case. As Vitrano Wilson writes, To my knowledge, there is not a single academic article, published or otherwise, dedicated to defending the practice of including the first half of the Shahada in Bible translations, even though this has been done in several Arabic Muslim idiom translations by multiple organizations, including Wycliffe, SIL, the United Bible Societies, Frontiers, and others. Wycliffe, SIL, and UBS leaders are aware of these translation practices and the criticism they have come under, but as of yet, translators and leaders favoring such translations continue to publish MITs, including this phrase, without making any academic defense of the practice. End quote. And I would just add that refusing to talk to people, refusing to engage in friendly debate with people, is anti-academic. It sounds more like the coddling of the American mind. 
So Vitrano Wilson goes on to write that out of the organizations that chose not to sign the Arlington Statement, only SIL has made any public statement in response, although I would say it wasn't really very public. Dick Croneman, International Translation Coordinator for SIL, posted the following on MAP, a public forum for Bible translators. But an aside here, I don't think this is really public because you have to have an account to log in and see what has been posted. And then secondly, there aren't really any Christian public lay people donors who follow this forum. Of course, there may be a few, but what I'm getting at here is this was not like a public release, press release, or statement that was posted on the homepage of SIL's website. So anyway, that aside, here's what it said. SIL's concern about the Arlington Statement centers around its prescriptive approach. It is more restrictive than the FOBI and World Evangelical Alliance standards, which maintained a commitment to faithful translations while including carefully crafted language about the movement's rich diversity. We believe that our current standards and policies enable us to achieve accuracy while appropriately engaging with the different contexts in which we serve. Therefore, SIL is not supportive of the Arlington Statement, end quote. In response, a document on the Arlington Statement website noted the following. It is important to realize that there is a history of translation organizations believing that less oversight is needed, but of churches pushing back and requiring more oversight. As an example, for decades, no translation organization had any guidelines on divine familial terms. After controversy arose, some organizations developed their own internal guidelines on the issue. These guidelines were deemed insufficient by a large number of churches and denominations, as well as by many experienced Bible translators. And as a result, the WEA Independent Bible Translation Review Panel was commissioned. Most of the issues addressed in the Arlington Statement have not been addressed specifically by any other set of translation guidelines. If the FOBI translation standards are truly sufficient to address all of these issues, why were the WEA guidelines or the previous internally developed guidelines on divine familial terms considered necessary by any translation organizations? End quote. And to my knowledge, SIL never responded to that. So once again, we're back to all the tensions involved. You don't want to alienate people. You don't want to upset donors and partnering churches. And you don't want to create tension and division among your staff and alienate either those who deem your policies too strict or too lenient or both. As Vitrano Wilson observes, if there is not a live controversy caused by specific translations within one's organization, there's a strong incentive to ignore the issue. On the other hand, once a live controversy exists, not having a policy or having a vague or lenient policy is a policy. The perception that the leaders of Wycliffe and SIL were allowing translators in some areas to go beyond faithful boundaries was the source of much internal conflict, with many members shocked and dismayed at the translations of father-son terms being done by translators in their own organization. And that leadership was not only allowing, but even supporting and defending such practices. 
likewise many potential donors, along with several Wycliffe SIL members, were drawn to organizations with tighter policies, end quote. Now, before we get to some of the ways that Wycliffe SIL and others are currently dealing with this in a public manner, let's rewind and take a look at some of their PR regarding the divine familial terms issue. Now, remember, back in the midst of this controversy, the biblical missiology petition came out that asked Wycliffe, SIL, and Frontiers to make a written commitment not to remove Father, Son, or Son of God from the text of Scripture. Now, Wycliffe USA responded by denying the petition's claims. They used nuances of meaning that the average layperson would completely misunderstand. So, see if you can hear these nuances, the spin that they put on this. So, here it goes. Wycliffe is not omitting or removing the familial terms, translated in English as Son of God or Father, from any scripture translation. Erroneous information and rumors on the internet have recently raised questions concerning this issue. Wycliffe never has and never will be involved in a translation which does not translate these terms. End quote. So, of course, I can't say whether this was intentionally deceptive or not, but it definitely comes across to me as deceptive, and it did to a lot of people. So, SIL stated also at the time, they said, quote, SIL restates emphatically, SIL does not support the removal of the divine familial terms, Son of God or God the Father, but rather requires that scripture translation must communicate clear understanding of these terms. So, Vitrano Wilson says, like Wycliffe, SIL decried campaigns of, of misinformation and erroneous information in response to the petition. So, it's true that Wycliffe and SIL translators were not removing familial terms in the sense of leaving a blank space in the Bible, of course. The debate was and is about how to translate certain key terms, not whether they should be translated or just skipped over. However, Wycliffe and SIL leaders should have known that the average layperson, indeed, even many translators within their organizations, would have understood Wycliffe and SIL's categorical denials and claims of misinformation and rumors to indicate that Wycliffe and SIL translators had never been involved in the many translations presented by the petition authors that removed the normal terms for father and son, and instead replace them with other terms that do not mean father or son. When Wycliffe and SIL later acknowledged their involvement in some such translations, many who had read the earlier denials understandably felt lied to. This interaction illustrates the dangerous temptation to attack uninformed critiques without addressing legitimate critiques. If Wycliffe and SIL leaders wanted to deny an uninformed misunderstanding of what removal of familial terms meant, they could have done so while also making clear their actual translation choices. This would have acknowledged the reality of the situation that all informed observers knew, while also correcting any misunderstanding that may have existed in some parts as to what removing familial terms meant in practice. Later statements by Wycliffe and SIL were more nuanced than their initial comments, but the initial highly misleading statements nonetheless took a toll on their public credibility. End quote. So, I would just add here that 
open, honest, detailed, patient communication is to be prized in these kinds of organizations with the public and with the donors and other partners. The more we hide behind silence and the more we hide behind general statements that can often confuse donors or non-specialists drastically undermines our credibility. And I would argue that's just simply unbiblical. I think these organizations are very aware of the complexity of the issue. So if they want to stick to their guns, stick to a certain philosophy of translation or methodology, then they should be willing to very patiently inform the public, inform the partners in ways that they can understand so that they can fully grasp every nuance of the discussion. This would involve not only writing academic papers, but doing interviews, long-form debates, and extensive articles that thoroughly and patiently lay out all of the details of what's going on, what they want to do, why they're doing it, from a stance of humility, inviting feedback, welcoming people's prayers for wisdom. Now, on the flip side, I will say this. The evangelical church has not been good at responding to these sorts of things with a spirit of grace and love, seeking understanding. These organizations know this. They know the tendency of so many Christians to immediately demonize anybody who might challenge their comfort zone. This is obviously not reserved to politics. People want to polarize. And that's just one of the sins that the evangelical church in the West has to be repenting of constantly. Now, getting back to our topic of PR, Vitrano Wilson notes that another factor that has made public understanding of Muslim idiom translations more difficult is the existence of organizational policies restricting public speech relating to father-son terms or other religious idiom translation issues. So, it's interesting that some of these orgs like SIL don't want to be too restrictive, as they claim the Arlington Statement is, but then they turn around and restrict their own members from talking about the issues. In the case of Wycliffe and SIL, this comes in the form of a policy document entitled Communication Protocols for SIL Publications and Presentations on Divine Familial Terms or Other Controversial Topics. First created in 2012, after the Biblical Missiology Petition and revised in 2014, this document forbids any public discussion, internet posting, communication with media, or publication of academic articles related to controversial topics such as divine familial terms and insider movements without explicit permission from SIL leadership. Such permission is rarely given. Few SIL members today are aware that this policy still exists and continues to be implemented. And here's a little anecdote from Vitrano Wilson. He says, when I, as a member of a regional SIL entity, sought private feedback from translators in other organizations on translation principles related to religious idiom translations, my wife and I were threatened with forced resignation if we continue to seek such feedback, despite this being done through private channels and with no reference made to Wycliffe or SIL, their translators or translations. 
SIL leaders pointed to the communication protocols policy to justify this reaction. Meanwhile, both SIL and the United Bible Societies implemented either local or global prohibitions on their members signing the Arlington Statement, with some members who had signed being asked to take their names off. End quote. So this creates a false sense of consensus. And it also tragically opens them up to being filtered and represented through voices that may or may not fairly represent them. As Vitrano Wilson writes, Because of restrictive publication policies and the fear of reliving the days of the father-son controversy, translators produce religious idiom translations without making their translation decisions or the reasoning behind them known publicly. This keeps the spotlight off their translations along with the financial pressures that might bring, but it results in lower quality translations overall as translators are not exposed to the refining process of having their ideas challenged by others with different perspectives. Public discussion of translation issues causes everyone, including those coming from a more conservative perspective, to think more clearly and carefully about what the biblical text actually says and how it can be faithfully translated into different languages, end quote. Now, I want to say that it's totally fine if some mission agencies don't agree with some of the things we've talked about on this podcast series. If they want to make religious idiom translations, they're free to do that, but only if they're clear about what they're doing with their donors. This is the crucial element, honesty. If you're forthright about what you're doing and how you're doing it with your financial partners and patiently explain your reasons and arguments for doing so, and after all of that, they agree that what you're proposing is the best and most biblical decision and give you their blessing, then great. What's not okay is when, number one, you assume that many of your donors won't like what you're doing, so in order not to lose money, you don't tell them. Or number two, you assume that most of the donors are too dumb to understand the complexities of the issue, so it's not worth trying to explain to them or solicit their approval or opinions. Perhaps often the unspoken idea is, just give us the money. We're the experts. Let us do our job, and you send the money, and don't ask questions. Trust us as the professionals. We're doing things way above your power to comprehend, so don't bother trying to understand. Now, the second assumption is easy to empathize with because most people who support Bible translation don't care to delve into the details or learn more about it. They like the general idea of Bible translation, but they certainly don't want to bother with a podcast like this one or learn more about what's involved behind the scenes. Some of them don't have the time or mental energy to learn or ask questions. This actually reminds me of the internet scam industry, which rakes in about $20 billion a year. I learned recently that many of them only target those who are 65 and older, and many of their phone calls even have an automated question that asks you if you're 65 or older, and if you say no, they hang up. This generation has accumulated an unprecedented amount of wealth in human history. And there are a lot of people who want a piece of it, including nonprofit organizations. So the tendency often seems to be that people at this age, they're just not interested in changing their minds or learning new things. And they may already trust a big organization like Wycliffe because of their reputation in the past and have no interest in looking deeper into how 
Bible translation organizations might be changing or doing things differently in a way they might not be comfortable with. If that sounds a little harsh, the reality is that these big organizations like Wycliffe actually spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars paying professional marketing and fundraising companies to keep people giving and to bring in more givers. I actually had a friend who used to work for one of these fundraising companies, and so I'm not making this up when I say that it is extremely big business. Anyway, in the end, these theological issues with the translations are compounded by ethical issues of transparency. Vitrano Wilson writes, Having policies that forbid what God would not forbid serves no one. But translation organizations as well as churches and other partners must be aware that having no policy is itself a policy and one which may lead to significant problems. In the realm of finances, Christians are nearly unanimous in agreeing that certain formal constraints or fixed boundaries are helpful, along with public disclosure requirements. How much more, when handling God's holy word, would the church benefit from full public disclosure of actual translation practices and examples, along with thoughtful, wise, and transparent policies that are flexible enough to accommodate how different languages work, but specific enough to avoid dangerous errors, end quote. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this episode and for this series. But I want to say one thing in closing. After months and months of searching for someone on the other side of this debate who disagrees with me and some of the people who have come on this podcast in this series, I haven't found anyone who is willing to speak publicly about it. But in the future, if you are the leader of one of these organizations like Frontiers or Wycliffe or SIL or United Bible Societies, or if you are a staff member and you are allowed to come forward and lend your voice to this podcast to offer another perspective or help better represent your side of the story, you will always be welcome. You can contact me over at workingfortheword.com. Once again, this is a podcast where we believe the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. And this podcast exists to help us all treasure the Bible more and go deeper into it and become like the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1.